The scripture that's been selected to be read in our hearing this morning comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16. We'll read verses 18 through 20. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Last week, we introduced a new sermon series called Blindfolds, and we noted that a blindfold is simply something that deprives a person of sight by covering their source of vision. And so a blindfold does not have to be a physical object. A blindfold can be spiritual in nature as well. A blindfold can be a mindset or an attitude or a trait an experience, an ideology. It can be something that prevents us from seeing spiritual realities. And we didn't dive into what specific blindfolds we might be wearing last week. We saved that to start today. See, we noted last week when we studied Revelation chapter 3 with the church in Laodicea that we can't grow while wearing a blindfold. And so this year, as our theme is focusing on what really matters, 2020 vision, in order for us to accomplish that, we have to remove anything that keeps us from seeing clearly. So we want to be about the business of removing our blindfolds. But first, we have to expose our blindfolds. That's step one, because... We also observed that with the church in Laodicea, they were unaware they even had a blindfold. And we noted that it's completely possible for us to be blind to our blindfolds. So today we're going to start about the task of identifying blindfolds. We're going to start with one potential blindfold today that some of us might be wearing. But before we dive into that, I want to tell a story about Muhammad Ali. Arguably one of, if not the greatest boxer of all time. And Muhammad Ali was known not just for his skill in the ring, but for his um, boastfulness. He was an expert at expressing personal self-esteem, if you will. And on one occasion, he boarded a flight somewhere, and the stewardess came by and asked him to buckle his seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And I love the stewardess because her reply was, Superman doesn't need to fly. Or actually, it was Superman doesn't need a plane. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Pride can be one of our blindfolds. Now, you, you know throughout Scripture that pride is condemned, that pride is criticized, that, that pride is talked about in a negative sense. See, when we think about pride, we tend to associate it with boastfulness or haughtiness, with arrogance. We we tend to think of pride as an external display of a person's inordinate self-worth or disdain for other people. And that is a definition of pride. Pride is that. 
And throughout the Bible, that kind of pride is heavily criticized and condemned. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, he said that pride leads to disgrace. In chapter 16 and verse 18, as we read moments ago, he said that pride leads to destruction. And in chapter 29, verse 23 of Proverbs, he said that pride will inevitably, inevitably be result in being brought low. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 22, pride is identified by Jesus as one of the evil things that arise from within out of the heart of a man and ultimately defile a person. In Romans chapter 1, Paul identified arrogance and boastfulness as conduct of those who refuse to acknowledge God, who possess a debased mind, and who do not do what, they, what ought to be done. And then in multiple passages in the New Testament, we're told that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You can see very clearly that pride is not a favorable attribute in Scripture. But that tends to us be the pride that is an external display of showmanship, of being haughty, of being uh, a braggart, and that sort of thing. There is another kind of pride that doesn't get talked about as much. It's more internal and private. I'm talking about the kind of pride that elevates the self, not in the sense of bragging, not in the sense of an external display, not in the sense of showmanship, but in the sense of, I'm in control. I can do this. We're talking about a more quiet kind of pride that you might not ever see evidence in somebody's life. And I find it so fascinating because if you go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, where the pride of life is identified as one of the three broad categories of sins, and it's said to not, it's said to not be from the Father, but from the world, it's interesting because that's a different Greek word than all the other passages that reference pride. When you go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, the Greek word being used here for pride isn't specifically or isn't exclusively referring to the outward boastfulness that is associated with pride. It's also a term as is defined in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, a term that denotes the attitude of the man who does not ask concerning the will of the Father, but tries to make out that he himself may sovereignly decide concerning the shape of his life. Let me put that in simpler terms. It's a do-it-yourself approach to life. It's that kind of pride that says, I am capable, I can do this on my own. It's that kind of pride that men have when they refuse to look at a navigational tool when they're driving. It's that kind of pride that you have when you refuse to ask for somebody's help when you're trying to take on a task that, that you just really can't handle on your own. It's that kind of pride that I have when I try to move furniture in my house without getting any help and I end up pulling in my back out or something like that. We know this kind of pride, don't we? And far too many of us possess this kind of pride. But this isn't the kind of pride we usually call out and criticize because it's usually a kind of pride that goes more unnoticed. And it's a kind of pride that can inevitably lead to a blindfold. So today, let's talk about that for a little bit. See, how can pride of this sort be a blindfold? Well, we are blindfolded by pride when we rationalize our sin. You see, this kind of pride that I'm talking about, it can cause us to be one who rationalizes things that aren't right. 
To rationalize something is to attempt to explain or justify a behavior or an attitude with logical, plausible reasons, even if they are not true or even appropriate. Rationalizing is just a fancy word for avoiding responsibility when you think about it. Because when we rationalize sin, we are ultimately working out a logical or even emotional formula by which we can avoid guilt. Rationalization boils down to a I don't want to admit I'm wrong mentality. And far too many of us, myself included, are experts at rationalization. There should be degrees in rationalization because we would all have master's degrees, I think. We are experts at justifying something that's wrong under terms that we think are right. I want you to consider somebody in Scripture who is really, really good at rationalization. His name is Saul, and he was king of Israel for a time. When Saul was appointed king, he was chosen by God for that role, and it was God's intent for Saul to succeed as a king. We know in the end that didn't really work out for Saul. And the straw that broke the camel's back was an incident that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was given an assignment by God. The assignment was to go annihilate the Amalekites. And God wasn't kidding. God made very specific parameters for this assignment. I don't want anyone to be taken captive. He wants everyone destroyed. He doesn't even want the livestock to survive. So he wants no spoils of war taken from these people. God was enacting judgment on the Amalekites for prior sins. And he wanted Saul to annihilate them. So Saul goes to battle against the Amalekites. He handily defeats them because, of, uh, because God is on his side. But Saul takes their king, Agag, as a prisoner of war. And Saul permits the people to take the best of the livestock as spools. When Samuel arrived on the scene after the battle, after the after this victory, Saul confidently declares, you can see this, I believe it's in verse 9, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9, Saul declares this. He says, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. I have done all that the Lord has commanded me to do. I love Samuel's reply because he listens and hears these animals making noises. He says, what do I hear then? If you did what the Lord told you to do, then why do I hear some sheep and some oxen and other animals back here making noises? When Saul's error is pointed out by Samuel, do you know what he does? He instantly goes into rationalization mode. He instantly starts defending his decisions and his actions with some level of rationale that he can come up with. Instead of admitting that he did something wrong, he resorted to justifying his sin. Look at what he said in verse 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. He says, They, a reference to the people of Israel, they have brought the animals from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. I have done everything the Lord commanded me, but except this, and here's why. Because it's the people doing it. So we can make sacrifices to God. See, what Saul does here is something you and I do a lot. 
he rationalizes his error on two fronts. First, he rationalizes it by blaming somebody else. You ever done that? Somebody else's fault that I've sinned. I fulfilled the commandment of the Lord, but they took the sheep and the oxen. It's their fault, not mine. I'm not guilty of this. They are. We're very good at passing blame because we're the society of lawsuits. I'm fat because McDonald's makes a bad burger. We love to blame other people. That's what Saul's doing. I want you to think about it in a spiritual context for a minute. Your marriage is struggling. You and your spouse are at odds and you're fighting and, and she's disrespecting you or he's not showing the affection he ought to. Whatever it is, you're constantly at each other's throats and your marriage is on the brink of, of, of dissolving. And your approach is this, well, if he or she didn't do that, I wouldn't respond this way. The blame goes on the other individual. Or maybe your contribution isn't what it shouldn't be. God doesn't receive financial priority in your life. See, I'm not talking all about blatant, horrible, the worst of the worst sins. I'm talking about anything that's not in alignment with the will of God. Say you're you don't give God financial priority. And your mindset is, well, if insurance wasn't so expensive, if I could just get out of debt, or if I could just get this raise at work, then God could get financial priority. You see, we're blaming it on someone or something else. We could come up with numerous examples today of ways in which we find someone or something else to take the blame for why we don't do what we're supposed to do. And that's what Saul's doing. But Saul does something else. He doesn't just pass the blame. <laughs> Saul also tries to justify his error with righteous purpose. Not only did we keep the livestock because they did it, but we kept the livestock because we want to make sacrifices to God. There's a good reason for doing the wrong thing, right? You ever done that? Justified doing something that was wrong because it had a good purpose behind it. The end justifies the means. That's what Saul's doing. Maybe you forsake the assembly quite a bit. And your response when you forsake the assembly is, oh, we needed some family time. Family time is good. You need to make time for your family. You need to spend some time as a family unit. Or maybe you forsake the assembly because your kids, they've got to get that homework done. And we just needed some time for them to be able to sit down and do their homework. Homework's a good thing, and it's good to ensure your child's academic success, and it's good to encourage them to promote that and to focus on that. Or maybe life's been so busy. We just needed some downtime. We needed some rest. You realize rest is extraordinarily important. God commanded a day of rest in Mosaic Law. But you can offer up all of those reasons, and they all have good and, 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 and important functions to them, and they are right in their own respect. 
But in comparison to the worship of God, are they justifiable? My point is this, we can find good and righteous reasons for doing things to justify and rationalize doing things we know we ought not to be doing. But rationalization is not acceptable to God. It's this event in the life of King Saul that he loses the kingdom over. See, here's the problem with rationalization that we have to admit today. We have to admit that rationalization assumes innocence. When we are rationalized doing something that is contrary to the will of God, what we are ultimately doing is trying to find our innocence in a situation. We're trying to avoid being guilty of something. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 makes it clear that, that we're not innocent people. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, John goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have to realize that just because we're rationalizing it in our own mind doesn't excuse us of the guilt. It just makes your conscience feel a little bit better. We have to accept the guilt of our sin when we do what is wrong, and that's what Saul struggled with. Another problem with rationalization is that Scripture holds us to the standard of doing what is right no matter what the circumstances are. James chapter 4 and verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you know what is right, you're supposed to do what is right. And when we rationalize something that's wrong, we're not doing what is right. See, our pride, our refusal to accept our own guilt, our desire, to prove our own innocence can be a blindfold. can be something that keeps us from focusing on what really matters. But it's not the only form of pride that can be a blindfold. There's another form of pride that can blind us. It's when we ignore God's Word. Let me explain what I mean here for a moment. There are many ways in which we can ignore God's Word, but in the context of pride, we ignore God's Word through a sense of entitlement. Now that word entitlement has come, become quite popular in our society because those who are older than millennials like to say that millennials are in, entitled. And there's some fairness to that. But let's be honest. We all feel a sense of entitlement at some point in time, don't we? We all reach this point in life where we feel like we're above the rules, that we're bigger than the law. I'm not talking about the public law. I'm not talking about government-instituted law. I'm talking about the smaller things. Have you, as a parent or an adult, ever said to someone younger than you, you can't do that, but when you're an adult, I can? Maybe not in those exact words, because that was horrible pronunciation and horrible grammar. But that attitude of when you're an adult, you can now do this. It's okay. Right now, um, because of the hands-free law in Georgia, I mount my cell phone to the window. I've got a, one of those little suction things because I'm trying to not be a horrible driver. But the problem with that is I always have my GPS on. And Micah sits behind me, and Micah has learned that that 
that waves in the bottom left-hand corner shows the speed at which you're going. And she's noticed that when that speed turns red, that means you're going faster than you should be going. I get called out a lot. I might be doing 41 and a 40, but I'm getting called out on it from the back seat. And I can't sit here and say, oh, it's okay for me to speed, because what I'm telling her is, that once you become an adult, you don't have to abide by the law. I've had to humble myself a great bit on my driving because somebody's watching. See, pride can cause us to believe that we don't have to abide by the rules. And you know the person that it happened to in Scripture? David. The one individual in Scripture who's identified as a man after God's own heart, and yet even he was susceptible to the blindfold of pride. But David's blindfold was different than Saul's. David didn't rationalize sin after the fact. David justified sin before the fact. And let me show you what I mean. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to be going to chapter 11 in just a minute where we'll look briefly at the sin he committed with Bathsheba. But before we get there, we need to notice something six chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 5. When we reach 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is now king over the entire nation of Israel, and he's reigning out of Jerusalem finally. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 10, we're told that David became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. In other words, God made David very successful. In verse 12 of the same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, we read this. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So not only was David becoming more successful by the power of God, but he started to recognize his success. He started to realize that he was a big deal. And of course, he acknowledged that was because of God, but at the same time, his head was swelling a little bit. Look at verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Look at what David started doing. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. In other words, David used his greatness to accommodate his pleasure, which included an insatiable desire for women. And as a result, he began to amass a harem. Before chapter 5, he already had seven wives. Chapter 5 is telling us that he accrued more. Now the problem with this is that God had specifically given some instructions about kings long before there was ever a king on the throne in Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, in, in verse 14 through 17, God gave these instructions. He said, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, and neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In other words, God said, here are standards for the king. He's not going to increase his military might. He's not going to increase his economic wealth. He's not going to accrue more wives. And it's all because God was concerned about the one who's leading the nation of Israel in human form, devoting himself to God 
rather than himself. This means that David intentionally ignored God's instructions regarding kings when he began to accrue wives. And I think it is a clear indication that as his success went to his head, David developed a sense of entitlement, a belief that he was above the law. You fast forward a few years, and David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And he doesn't think twice about it. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 3, we're told that after observing her out there on that roof, he sent and inquired about her. That means that David, upon seeing Bathsheba, he didn't turn away in embarrassment for having observed something that was indecent. That means that David, upon seeing Bathsheba, didn't ignore what he saw out of an effort to maintain a purity of heart. What it means is that David transitioned from a state of observation to a state of lust. He looked at her with desirous, impure intent and followed through on that. And when David inquired about Bathsheba, that same verse, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, tells us that his servant responded, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I think that servant is attempting to remind David of God's word. Specifically, God's words about adultery. He informs David of Bathsheba's family, of Bathsheba's marital status, all in an effort, I believe, to remind David that she was off limits. And David ignored his reminder. The fact that David ignored God's direct command about kings not multiplying wives, as well as the servant's indirect reminder of God's commands against adultery, all that points to the fact that he was operating out of a sense of entitlement. And that sense of entitlement, that, that pride, blinded David to the point that he committed adultery and murder and needed a prophet to expose his sin to him. All too often, we operate out of that same sense of entitlement. We operate with this sense of, I deserve And it leads us into sin. And here's the thing about entitlement. The problem with entitlement is that God expects us to be obedient in all things. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 23, He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now I want you to think about what Jesus did not say. He did not say, if anyone loves me, he will keep some of my word or he will keep most of my word. The implicit understanding of what Jesus is saying is that, that if you love him, you will keep all of his words. And I think this is especially clear when you consider the very next verse, John 14, verse 24. Because in John 14, 24, Jesus says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And no one's going to argue that what Jesus meant there is, if, if whoever does not love me does not keep some of my words or most of my words, they're going to argue that that means all of his words. See, when we operate with a mindset of the rule doesn't apply to me, that's an entitlement way of thinking. When we operate with the mentality the rule doesn't apply to me, then we are picking and choosing which parts of God's Word we're going to keep and which parts we're going to ignore. We're treating God's Word like it's the Golden Corral Buffet. And that's not how it was intended. It's all or nothing. 
keep all of his word. The other problem with a sense of entitlement is that it assumes some of God's commands are not as important as others. Another way of saying that is that a sense of entitlement causes us to conclude that there are some sins that are not as serious as other sins. So we conclude that we're capable of discerning which sins are permissible and which sins are off limits. But such a mentality is, is error because James chapter 2 and verse 10 eliminates the potential for qualifying sin when it says whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. In other words, James is saying that all sins are equal because all sins result in the same consequence, imperfection. So our pride has this ability to blind us because it can create in us this sense of entitlement that we're above the rules. That we don't have to keep all of God's law, that we can, that we can pick and choose which ones we want, and that we're capable of making the decisions about which sins are worse than others. We can become blind to the reality of our own sin, to the reality of our own failures. But we can also be blindfolded by pride when we minimize our weakness. What we're talking about is overconfidence. That belief that you're strong enough, that you're mature enough, that you're smart enough, that you're well-equipped enough to overcome any challenge or any obstacle or any temptation or any storm that comes your way. Overconfidence boils down to a that-won't-happen-to-me mentality or an I-can-handle-that-on-my-own mentality. And Peter possessed this mentality. You may recall in Matthew chapter 26, after the institution of the Lord's Supper and before they traveled out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, Jesus told the apostles that they would all fall away from him that night. But Peter confidently asserted, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And then Jesus, Jesus spoke directly to Peter and said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter's confidence didn't waver. Once again, Peter says, Matthew 26, verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I love the confidence of Peter. I just hate the follow-through. Because as you know, the story goes that Jesus was arrested and taken to the high priest's house for trial, and Peter followed at a distance. He set up camp out there in the courtyard among the soldiers who arrested Jesus. And while Jesus was on trial three different times, somebody spotted Peter and concluded that, that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And every time, Peter denied it. And every time, Peter defied, denied it more emphatically. The first time, we're just told he denied it. The second time, we're told he denied it with an oath, meaning that he was trying to swear by something, God's name, the temple, something. He was trying to swear by something sacred to prove the veracity of his claim. The third time he denied it by calling down curses on himself. In other words, he was saying something along the lines of, God, punish me if I'm not telling the truth. He was trying to prove that he wasn't associated with Jesus. Not long after he had told Jesus he'd be willing to die, but he wouldn't deny. This is the guy 
who back in Matthew chapter 16 boldly proclaimed the identity of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the guy who was willing to get out of a boat and walk on water. This is the guy who pulled out a sword and tried to kill people when they came to arrest Jesus. This is the guy that if you were to pick any of the apostles to be strong enough, he'd be the one. And if someone as knowledgeable, as courageous, as passionate for Christ as Peter can be overconfident, then certainly you and I can too. And here's the problem with being overconfident. The Bible specifically tells us not to be overconfident. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, For by grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And he says this right before he launches into instructions related to the body of Christ and our need for one another and the way we support one another and the way we contribute to one another. Paul's saying, don't think about yourself more than you should. Be sober about your own view of yourself. Another problem with being overconfident is that Scripture indicates that we're capable of falling. In particular, I want you to think about Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, where Paul gives the instruction regarding uh, standing against the schemes of the devil. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Two things notice about that. This verse indicates that standing is not guaranteed so that you may be able to stand. It speaks of standing just as a possibility, not a guarantee. The other thing this verse says, or verse implies, is that you can't stand on your own. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. The standing is associated with whether or not you're covered in the armor of God. You need God's help. Peter demonstrates that to us. Time and time again, life demonstrates that to us. Because when the storms rise, it's very easy for us to fall. When life gets too hard, it's very easy for us to succumb to the temptation to run and hide. We're no different than Peter. We can deny just as quickly as he can. We just may not do it in the same direct way that he did. But when the storms of life come, it's very easy for us to resort to the ways of life in which we trust in ourselves and not in God. And that's when we're blinded by pride because of our overconfidence. See, we think of pride typically as this boastfulness, this outward display of showmanship, this arrogance that, that can only be expressed externally. But pride can also happen within us when we believe that we know what's best. When we believe that we can stand all on our own. 
and when we spend our time rationalizing and justifying what we think is right instead of heeding to what God said is right. And I want to tell you very quickly as we close out about this ship. This ship, pictured on the screen, is the Admiral Nakimov. It's a Soviet passenger liner. And in this picture, it's docked on the Black Sea on August 31st, 1986. She would sink later that day due to a collision with a cargo ship. And the lives of 423 passengers and crew would be lost. The sad thing about this collision is that it was completely avoidable. It wasn't caused by technology issues. There was no radar malfunction or anything like that. It wasn't the result of natural causes. There was no dense fog or storm that rose up and caused the, conclu- the collision. It was entirely caused by human stubbornness. Just minutes after launching from this dock, the pilot of this passenger liner noticed that there was a freighter on a collision course with them. He radioed that freighter, warned them of the potential of collision, and the freighter responded, don't worry, we will pass clear of each other, we will take care of everything. An hour later, and the freighter had done nothing to slow down, had done nothing to alter their course, but neither did the passenger liner. And that freighter rammed into the starboard side of this liner and ripped a 90-square-foot hole in its hull. And after 11 o'clock at night, this liner sank in seven minutes, just two miles from shore. It sank so fast they couldn't even get to the lifeboats. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. Both could have steered clear, but neither wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield. And it cost people their lives. We don't think of pride as being something that most Christians struggle with in the sense of that outward boastfulness, but pride is something that we can be blinded by. Because we have this capacity to ignore God's word thinking that that we are above it in some fashion. And we have this capacity to rationalize sin, justifying what we know is wrong, trying to make it right. And we have this capacity to be overconfident in ourselves and our abilities to withstand temptation. To endure the storms. We can be blinded by pride. And if we want to be a people that focus on what really matters, we've got to take off the blindfolds. And so today, you might be someone who's blinded by pride. Maybe never even realized it, never never saw it, never thought of it in those terms. Well, we invite you to remove the blindfold today. Because for the next several weeks, that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to take off the blindfolds so that we can see what really matters, spiritually speaking. If you need to remove yours today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.